Hello and welcome to this week's Roundtable edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. This week we're taking a look at 9-11, 20 years on. Two decades from the first defining event of the 21st century, its consequences and our reaction to them seem more ruinous and futile than ever. What can we learn from the terrorist attacks on the US? And do we fully understand how they changed us? Terrorism and security scholar Dr. Maria Norris joins us to try and make some sense of it all. Plus, as Afghanistan shows, new crises are emerging as conflict and climate change collide. It's a volatile mix which is already engulfing developing nations. And, just to take the edge off things, how did 9-11 shape pop culture? From Battlestar Galactica to the Marvel Universe, Maria and I will be geeking out to help out. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Thanks for joining us again. We hope you're enjoying the podcasts. You can help spread the word about The Bunker by forwarding the episode link to three like-minded friends. It's super easy. The share button is right there on your app. And there's an extra reason to fly the flag for the podcast this week, because on Saturday, we're launching a brand new edition, The Culture Bunker, covering music, TV, film, books. It's basically your Saturday pop culture supplement. And that'll be with you first thing Saturday or late Friday if you're a Patreon backer. Now, let's meet the panel. First up, welcome back to the optimistic author of How Britain Ends, former BBC journalist and currently Chancellor of the University of Kent, Gavin Esler. Hi, Gavin. Hello, and I'm always optimistic, as you well know, Andrew. You are. You, you yes. are a, a ray of sunshine into, into our miserable lives. So speaking of rays of sunshine, uh, Andrew Neil looks like he's about to leave GB News less than three months after it launched. I think he only did uh, two weeks on the desk before going on holiday. What did you make of this? Are you surprised the way it's gone for uh, Brillo? Not really. I mean, he is a first-class journalist. Uh, you know, I think he, when he was working at the BBC, he kept his politics out of it. Uh, is, uh, running The Spectator is a different matter. I mean, there's some pretty odd people that write for it, it seems to me. Um, but GB News was always, well, I always thought if I wanted to listen to a group of boring people talking nonsense without any facts and knowing anything that they were actually wittering on about, I'd go to Weatherspoons. Why would I switch on the TV? So I thought you said Weatherspoons and not podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Podcasts are a, a, a good choice. But so him leaving, hardly surprising. I just uh, I just have no idea why anybody watches it. I've never seen it, to be honest, because just, uh, just the promotional material and knowing some of the names on it put me off. I mean, Andrew Neil, he, he is a really good interviewer and it's almost sad what's happened. Here. What do you think he's done to his reputation? I'm not sure he's done done too much to it because you know, as I say, most people haven't haven't even watched it, and he's got out, and he's mm. got out while it, it was probably worth having a go, I suppose, at, at something new, something different. He is a great interviewer, and uh, I hope he finds a role doing that. And he's a, I mean, it is interesting that Boris Johnson wouldn't appear with him during the election campaign in 2019. There's a reason for that. He would have made mincemeat out of Johnson. I look forward to seeing or hearing him somewhere. Andrew, that is, not Johnson. Putting Andrew Neil into rehab. Televisual rehab is what we want to see. Also back on the bunker, it's former Foreign Office diplomat Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hello. So we're going to be talking about Afghanistan a bit later, but uh, it looks like knives are out for Dominic Raab at the moment. There was a fairly brutal economist profile that said certain officials have taken to calling him Five Eyes, which is a reference not just to the Five Eyes security arrangements, but that he's insular, imperious, idle, irascible, and ignorant. And the profile said that important decisions are now being shaped by callow youths who've seldom strayed outside the Westminster village rather than seasoned diplomats. What's your take on this? Is is, uh, is Raab shaping up as our, actually our worst foreign secretary ever, even worse than the last guy? Well, I think that's a pretty high bar to clear because, you know, being worse than Boris Johnson assumes that you don't even take the job seriously and you think it's all a bit of a joke. Whereas I think Raab takes it very seriously. But the problem is that Raab is 
a combination of, of incompetent and frankly rather unpleasant. I mean, I know people in the Foreign Office who actively change jobs to avoid having to sort of interact with him. He's known for, for not being an easy person to be around. He's very sort of self-centred and, and he's always convinced he's right about everything. And in that sense, you know, that's where Boris Johnson is a bit different. Uh, Boris Johnson is, because he's so lazy, he is actually quite willing to listen to other people to help him get, get around the problem. There does seem to be a slight element of the Captain Darling about Rob. Do you remember the, the bit in Blackadder where he says, if you cross me, you'll find I'm bloody hard, bloody hard. And you kind of think, no, no you're not. You're, you're, you're a pushover. Yeah, well, I mean, we all know, you know, Dominic Rob wants everybody to know that he's a black belt in karate. And, <laughs> and he's always got that sort of slightly sweaty forehead thing going on. He always looks as though there's sort of pent up anger in there. And, and, you know, irascible is one of the eyes, and certainly there's plenty of evidence for that. So, I, you know, I, I can't tell why he's got these anger issues, but he does seem to have them. Half, uh, half um, Captain Darling and half Gareth from the office. There's talk of replacing him with Liz Truss. Are you looking forward to that? Well, it, it, certainly if you are trying to sort of try every possible candidate for worst foreign secretary ever, I guess it's important to give Liz Truss a go because, I mean, she's clearly incompetent. Um, and possibly even moronic, I don't know. Um, and so I think it's, you know, you've got the joker, you've got the sort of the angry man, and then you've got the, the person who who just sort of is, is a walking blunder. And so it'd be nice to sort of give them all a go, and then we could sort of at least have a, a fair comparison, I suppose. This is supposed to be the camera, not the Suicide Squad. We're delighted to be joined today by Dr. Maria Norris, terrorism and security expert at the University of Warwick and host of the Enemies of the People podcast, described by one iTunes reviewer as a bunch of woke wankery. Welcome to the bunker, <laughs> Maria. You're in the right place. Thank you. Yes, it's woke wankery of the highest quality. There are other places you can get average woke wankery, but if you want <laughs> high quality woke wankery, come to Enemies of the People. <laughs> so tell us, tell us a bit about the podcast, because they're, they're sort of extended conversations with people with, with strong positions on the world of, uh, of security, of extremism and stuff like that. What made you start it? Yeah, so um, I started Enemies of the People for two reasons. One, in a, for a very personal reason, I went through a period of turmoil and I felt like I needed something that I could do to take agency and control mm. and reclaim my own voice. I'm an academic and uh, people who work in academia know that it can be a really brutal workplace, um, very brutal industry, like many other industries. So I felt like I needed to do something to take control of my voice and ownership of my voice. And the other reason I did it is because I my work is on terrorism and security, broadly speaking, but specifically on white supremacy in Britain and far right terrorism in Britain. And I was getting really frustrated having conversations with people and saying things like, you know, this is it's a bit fascism, it's a bit fascist or, you know, fascist adjacent and people getting quite outraged and going, no, this is not, you know, the 1940s or 1930s. So I felt like I needed to have conversations with experts, people who I admire and whose work I admire and also who are working in this field in general about fascism, but fascism not as a historical event, but as a type of politics. Fascism is a, the politics of hierarchy, of dividing human beings into us versus them, in deciding who are the people and then who are the enemies of the people. And the enemies of the people tend to be those who are speaking out against the status quo. So I, every, every episode features me and a guest. We have lots of conversations about the, the guests vary from policymakers to authors, experts, artists, etc., 
and we have conversations about that work and the slightly fascist adjacent work world around us, as it were. Well, one thing that we've seen last week, pretty close to uh, what you're talking about. I mean, you can say what you like about Britain's response to far right terrorism. But last week, a former student who downloaded 70,000 documents and bomb making instructions was sentenced to read Dickens, Austin, Shakespeare and Thomas Hardy instead of being jailed. A, is this a good idea? And B, do you think he he would have got that sentence if he were a brown person? I would never say it's a good idea for anyone to read Dickens because it's not my area of um, interest. But, you know, if it is yours, you know, knock yourself out. But um, there's also quite telling, isn't it, that somebody who's a white supremacist was um, sentenced to read white authors rather than any authors on, you know, racism and history or black authors, etc. So that's something there. But um, what was most shocking about this is it's not that shocking if you do the kind of research that I do, because this is not even the first time something like this has happened. Yes, the whole thing about reading Jane Austen and, and Dickens makes it kind of out of an absurd anecdote, but it really isn't just a one-off. So the example that I used when I was talking to people about this last week is um, Ryan McGee. So this happened a few years ago. I believe it was 2014. Ryan McGee was a soldier and he was found, um, there was a viable nail bomb in his room. Mm in his bedroom. He had written it in his diary and in many forums online about how he hated immigration and he wanted to drag every last immigrant to hell. And he was encouraging acts of violence against immigrants as well. He was found with one of the largest caches of weapons in the country in a long while. And the crime prosecution service declared that he was just an immature teenager and he never had any intention of actually carrying on with his threats to bomb immigrants. So instead, he was prosecuted under the Explosive Substances Act and got two years in prison rather than being prosecuted for being a terrorist and a white supremacist. So we have this um, this trend, I would say, in the UK, in the media and law enforcement and in the government as well, to always give far-right extremists the benefit of the doubt. Like, they didn't mean to. You know, they wrote that they were going to bomb immigrants, but they weren't really going to do it. They didn't mean it. So it um, it, it minimizes the threat. It dismiss, dismisses the threat. And I think that's quite dangerous. The, not, you know, just the fact that it happened, but that it happens more than once. It is quite a regular occurrence. Until maybe six months ago, it was just about possible to half convince yourself that the consequences of the terrorist attacks of September the 11th, 2001 were receding in importance. They were part of the past. Afghanistan put paid to that. The ignominious end of the original intervention of the war on terror is already looking like a watershed for the West. So where were we all 20 years ago this Saturday? How did we personally experience it and how has it changed the world in the years since? And what are the lessons we've still not learned? Arthur, whereabouts we... This is the standard question for everyone, isn't it? Where were you on September the 11th? Can you remember what you were doing? Yes, I can. At that time, I was a junior diplomat working in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria, which is um, an odd city in the middle of the country, uh, a country, of course, that has a large Muslim population. And the immediate uh, response, which now seems very absurd, was a fear that, you know, Al-Qaeda might be sort of there active in, in Nigeria. No such thing did occur. But in fact, there was even a, a rumour, completely absurd rumour, that bin Laden himself was somewhere in North Nigeria. So there was a lot of sort of panicky response, lockdown and all that kind of stuff in the immediate aftermath. And then for me personally, it, it then became, became a sort of defining event uh, in my own career because I, as a direct result of that, I, I was um, put on to learn Arabic language training and ended up working in counterterrorism for the next 10 years, basically. Did you know in pretty short order that... I mean, it, it is a massive cliche, but cliches don't get to be cliches without being true, that the world had changed kind of before your eyes. 
Yes, I think I did. Obviously, I'm not going to claim that I knew all the ramifications. And clearly, the 2003 invasion of Iraq was something that very few people would have seen coming in that day in September 2001. But having been aware of bin Laden and al-Qaeda prior to 9-11, and obviously they were not household names, but I was in that world that people knew about these things, I think I was aware that this was a, a, a fundamental sort of epochal moment. And one of the kind of elements of shared wisdom, I suppose, conventional wisdom around it was that it had come out of nowhere and nobody could possibly have predicted this. But of course, very quickly, I mean, there'd already been one attack on, on the Twin Towers previously. In the world that you were working, was there a sense that this had definitely been coming or did it come out of the blue? I think that the scale and ambition of it was uh, was unexpected. You're absolutely right. There had been a prior attempt to attack the Twin Towers, but it hadn't looked very likely to succeed. And I think one of the things even now about 9-11 is that if you think about all of the contingencies that happened at risk of using the wrong sort of language, they were incredibly lucky, you know, that it... Mm. it to get hijackers onto flights all at the same time. Of course, there was one plane which went down in, into, a, into a forest, didn't meet its target. Uh, but for, for, for the other planes hitting the Pentagon and the Twin Towers, you know, they were incredibly lucky. It was an incredibly complex attack. It required a lot of things to have gone wrong in the US security system, whether we're talking about airports or no one noticing these people learning to fly planes, but are not interested in learning to land them. So all those things that came together. And, and, and I think anybody who claims that they sort of saw this coming is, is, uh, is, is almost certainly being misleading. It, it seems like a strange thing to, to ask, but I mean, do we, even at the distance of 20 years, do we still, do we really fully understand what the goal of the attacks was and whether they were achieved. Because you know, you heard a lot of people saying these attacks are intended to push the West into this direction or they're intended to push Iraq or Iran in this direction. There's also a diagnosis that, that essentially killing of Westerners was the goal. That was the end goal. What, what's, what's your sort of understanding of, of what the goal was? Well, I, I went back. I thought we'd, we'd better ask bin Laden. Now, obviously, he's not around uh, mm. to appear on the podcast, but... Um, uh, he he has you know he wrote extensively he gave sermons and so on and he specifically said that as a result of sort of striking America you could cause its foundations he believed it was a sort of corrupt polity built on weak foundations and its sort of foundations would crumble and and that America as a country would start to sort of fall in on itself I think possibly controversially that whilst you would never have said that in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. And of course, uh, there was a lot of talk about how America was sort of strong in its resolve and strong in its response. If you look at the chaos of the Trump era, you could argue that the 9-11 attacks certainly played a part in undermining people's belief in America and allowing a very sort of cynical type of politics to take hold which has started to weaken the republic itself. So I'm, I'm definitely not going to say, of course, that they achieved their exact objective because America is still by, by many uh, lengths the most powerful nation on earth in spite of what's happened in Afghanistan. But uh, it, it has certainly weakened it considerably. Maria, I've just been listening to you talking to Spencer Ackerman about this very same topic, that the roots of Trumpism and the roots of white supremacy resurgence in the, in the United States are in the trauma of 9-11. Yes, it's great timing, isn't it? It just goes to show what, a, even though I, I don't think it fundamentally changed 
much, but it has had a, an effect. So there's a difference between having an effect and having ch and changed something. It has changed. It has had an effect on how we approach certain issues. Definitely how we talk about security and how we approach our everyday lives. I mean, I remember exactly where I was when 9-11 happened. I was living in Austria at the time. I was in a school. It was just after school. I was going to a friend's house and I got a phone call from my mom and she was quite upset saying that New York was under attack. I needed to hurry home. So I hurried home and I got home just in time to see the towers fall. And that's mm. always engraved in my memory, just walking to my living room and seeing the towers fall and not really understanding what was going on. And I think from then on, the world, I think people became more, more aware of security issues, but I also think that previous prejudices were heightened. So what um, Spencer Ackerman says in his book, Reign of Terror, not only does he talk about how 9-11, you can trace a line between 9-11 and Trump, but how the, you, the US war on terror is very much hinged on white supremacy and a history of white supremacy in the US. And through my work and the book that I'm working on at the moment, if there are any agents listening, please call <laughs> me, is looking at how in the UK, it's a very similar situation. So here in the United Kingdom, the UK counterterrorism strategy post 9-11 is very much an outgrowth of the counterinsurgency methods used during the empire. So it is also hinged, you know, it's rooted in white supremacy, though in a very British context by looking at the empire. And we also have um, on the podcast next week, an interview with Sarah Kamali, who wrote a book called Homegrown Hate. And our interview is about looking at how both white nationalists and Islamic extremists have benefited, as it were, from state responses to 9-11. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit? How have they benefited? Because you would imagine that Islamist terrorism is obviously strongly religiously backed. You can kind of contest exactly how, but it has a certain community base, whereas white supremacism and far-right terrorism, both in the UK and the US, seems to be quite different in character. How have they benefited from that counter-terrorism uh, effort? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, I think they are not that different. I think that's... Um, that's to start at that, that mm. uh, Islamic extremism and white supremacist extremism, they are different perhaps in the external way that they present themselves. But at the core, both of them have this belief in the supremacy of a particular civilization. In one case, you know, the extreme version of Islam and then uh, the white nationalist, the ethno state. But hinged, both of them rely on this idea of the clash of civilizations, that there is an eternal war between these two these two um, powerful civilizations or powerful races, it depends on the, on the language that yeah. you use, and that they are always at odds and they cannot come together, they cannot work together, and only one will emerge supreme, and that everything must be done to make sure that the correct one emerges supreme, you know, for the sake of the future and the children or the faith or the race. Mm. So when I say that they have benefited from, the, from things like from the... American and British response to 9-11 is because the American and British response to 9-11 were and still to a large extent remain hinged on this idea of the clash of civilizations, that there is this great other in, in, in Islamic extremism case, you know, this great other, great Muslim other that provides some kind of a threat or in, um, if you're looking from the uh, um, Islamic, Islam, Islamist perspective the great other is the western other the non-muslim other so they both believe on this idea of the clash of civilizations and a lot of the war on terror on both sides of the atlantic only contributed to reinforce this idea gavin you're presenting the bbc evening news 
on September the 11th, 2001. That must have been a challenge, shall we say. Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a day, quite a night. I suppose the things that stick in my head, I was in London at the time, but I'd spent all of the past decade in the United States. And uh, it was a very strange decade because we were told it was the end of history, by, uh, you know, uh, that it was a unipolar world, that uh, there had been a clash of civilizations, but America had won and all that kind of hubris. And then suddenly it was obvious that uh, the new world order and every single one of those kind of shibboleths had kind of collapsed uh, along with the, 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 the Twin Towers. And the, the other thing that I remember so well, actually, was that the, the spawning of these ludicrous conspiracy theories, which also fed into mm. Trumpism and other things. And, and I was a victim of one of them, which was, was simply this, about three months after uh, 9-11, I was uh, chairing an event at... Uh, London City Hall and walking back along the Thames. And the, the event had been in the newspapers or something. And two very strange blokes with a, with, a, with a couple of cameras came up and said they wanted to ask me about why we had lied about a building that had been destroyed, not one of the Twin Towers, but another building which had been destroyed because a reporter in New York City who had been sitting in front of a photograph of the New York skyline informed us that a building had been colla- uh, had collapsed, but it clearly hadn't because you could see it behind her. <laughs> uh, I sort of had to point out that then on television you sometimes use pictures of skylines rather than sit in front of them. Anyway, uh, and the, also the, that newsrooms aren't aren't actually hovering over London or hovering over New York I in know, spaceships. I know. It, yeah. it, it was it, it was extraordinary, but I mean that you know that. The, the big picture for me was so much of the hubris that I'd seen and listened to when I'd been in Washington the previous decade had had all, had all gone. And suddenly Americans were vulnerable and they felt very vulnerable. And some of them, I mean, the, the, the decade of the 90s too, had some of the most extraordinary ignorance in the, in the United States political system about other places in the world. For instance, Dan Quayle, vice president, mm-hmm. uh, in one interview I did with him kept confusing Iran with Iraq, another member of the House Intelligence Committee. This is not American intelligence or the Foreign Service in America, who are all great, I think, in terms of knowing what they're doing. But, w- but one member of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, when I said to him, but, but what about the Shia in, in Iraq? And he hadn't a clue. All, he, he actually thought all Muslims were alike. Let's put it put it uh, bluntly. Mm. And so this kind of shattering of of ignorance didn't really work because if you remember, one of the reasons that the United States went to war was because Saddam Hussein was supposedly in cahoots with Osama bin Laden, which would be the most unlikely partnership that you can imagine, I would have thought. Yes, it's like Ian Paisley and the Pope getting together on some kind of uh, (laughs) venture of some sort. We tend to forget the kind of very heightened temperature of news and comment around this and then subsequently around Iraq. Do you think that 9-11 and the development of the war on terror, but also the development of the messaging around the war on terror, had lasting consequences for for journalism? I mean, we're we're told that, you know, one of the reasons people don't trust experts now and don't trust news and so forth is that, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, weapons of mass destruction and so forth? Well, there's, there's a number of layers to that. I mean, it, it, it always seemed to me ludicrous to go to war against Saddam Hussein because of Osama bin Laden. That's one thing. Mm. Secondly, it wasn't incredible that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. He didn't have them or we couldn't find them if, if they were there. But I mean, because he had used them against his own people and against Iran in the Iran-Iraq war. So it wouldn't, it wasn't entirely ludicrous. Um, but of course, this led to 
Uh, you're right. It led to a huge row between the government and the BBC, the BBC chairman, the BBC director general, Greg Dyke, a, a guy I liked a lot, um, had to had to resign. I have a slightly perverse view of this, which is it didn't do the BBC's image around the world any harm to be seen to be having a huge row with the British government about this issue. Uh, and, and I know from traveling to lots of places, including a lot of uh, Arab countries, that it didn't do the BBC's reputation any harm externally. But it did. The whole thing about experts is, is, is a, it seems to me, or not believing the experts, is something that we've had to live with for, for about 20 years, spouted by people, including Michael Gove, who obviously, when he has got a problem with his teeth, he doesn't go to a dentist because that'd be an expert. He goes to some bloke in the pub. I mean, <laughs> it's become one of the cliches of our age, unfortunately. Tony Blair is speaking about 9-11 this week. He's, he's warned that Islamism can't be contained by drone strikes, that the pressure of short-term political imperatives is giving both allies and opponents of liberal open societies the belief that our time is over. Is Blair destined to be ignored on these things because of the way that the war on terror developed? I don't know. I mean, I think, again, with Afghanistan, the, 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 what, it, what it has shown is that uh, in the early stages, you can uh, act against Osama bin Laden, that the United States can be relentless in as it seems in its pursuit of its own interests. But, you know, the strange thing is that uh, the old cliche again about how you repeat history if you don't learn from it. I mean, all the arguments about Vietnam, about how you're playing in someone else's land, they have to be there. You do not have to be there. I suppose, again, that you could imagine Biden channeling Richard Nixon, who once said that America cannot stand by as a pitiful, helpless giant when it has to do certain things to protect protect democracy. So no matter what Biden says now about not doing it in the future, well, we just have to wait and see. If uh, uh, the impulse to cut yourself off from the world, from American presidents comes and goes, and then suddenly the world intervenes as it did in 9-11 and they have to do something or feel they have to do something. Arthur, I believe you've got thoughts on Tony Blair's intervention there. I think there's a risk that he is always banging on about the same thing. And it's easy to sort of understand that he he feels a need to sort of return to this issue because it became such a defining issue of his premiership. And it's not that I think Islamism is is an irrelevance or is is doesn't represent any kind of threat to liberal societies or whatever, but it, it seems very tone deaf to pop up and say that it remains the primary threat when there are so many things that are clearly challenging in the modern era, whether it's right-wing populism, the climate crisis, the rise of great power or the return of great power rivalry. To keep banging on about Islamism, it just, it, it's really, I just wish someone would take him to one side and say, mate, you know, no one's asking you to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, you were involved in the the international arm of uh, Prevent Yourself. You ran it um, with with hindsight. What did the program do that was right, and what did it do that was wrong? Well, I certainly think that a lot of the criticism of Prevent doesn't seem to match exactly what the the program was seeking to do. So the the key thing with Prevent is you have to remember that it was one of the so called four P's of counterterrorism, and the other that was pursue, protect, and prepare, and the point about prevent was a simple view that it would be better that people didn't get into terrorism than that in the aftermath of a terrorist event you were part of a 
you know, police or security service trying to track them down, you know, as a sort of medical concept that but prevention is better than cure. So I think conceptually, that's actually quite an important insight. And dare I say it, even a liberal insight, because it's, it's about protecting society from harm mm-hmm. by having, you know, values that a society can embrace, uh, which, which mitigate against the, you know, the threat of political violence. Now, that's the theory of it. Now, there's plenty that's wrong. And, and the main thing that's wrong is that it became framed as a dialogue where Muslims were only talked to about terrorism. And so it was basically, you know, you're a Muslim. I want to talk to you about terrorism. I'm not interested about whether you have an education or whether you are struggling in your profession or whether your community faces racism or whatever. It was always, let's talk about terrorism. Let's talk about terrorism. And of course, some people within that community were very entrepreneurial and talked about terrorism as a means of developing professional or other opportunities. And, and, and why not? You know, the government was sort of obsessing with it. But I think what it did, it had an effect of stigmatizing a huge proportion of the population where, as we all know, the number of active terrorists at any time, even in a, in a society facing a really serious threat of terrorism, is a minuscule number of people. Marie, you've been pretty critical of, um, of Prevent. What, do, do you think that's a fair analysis? I was just thinking that um, Athwan and I should ta- chat about Prevent. Um, uh, yes, it, it, yes, it is. Um, in theory, Prevent, of course, I mean, it's a great idea to stop people from becoming terrorists. Prevention is always worse than, you know, than um, acting afterwards. The pursue strand of Prevent, uh, the, sorry, the pursue strand, strand of a contest was um, is always supposedly, at least on paper, the most um, oppressive one. But the way prevent was delivered, the way that theory, as it were, was put into practice was the problem. And I remember so clearly back in, seems like decades ago, when I, when I was doing my PhD, I did my PhD on the, program, on the prevent program. And I sent hundreds of freedom of information requests to the priority areas that were identified as being prevent priority areas. And I wanted to find out through those freedom of information requests, how was the prevent money being used in the local areas and this was obviously before the prevent duty this was back in 2010 and i got a lot of responses back and quite a few of them the uh, local authorities produced a lot of reports on the threats in their area and they said things like um we've conducted a thorough risk assessment there is no recognizable threat of extremism from um from in our local authority however because we have a demographic population above a certain number i may be wrong i don't remember it off the top of my head now but i think it was nine percent but it was a very low percentage um so because we have a muslim population in our area above this threshold we automatically receive prevent funding so we'll use the money anyway and they did they used the money on lots of things like um drama school and rap classes and football competitions, etc. But because the way Prevent was from the outset delivered in in a very targeted way at the Muslim community, it was prejudiced, discriminatory from the outset. The priority areas were decided on the basis of demographics, on the percentage of Muslims living in an area. So if you you can have a great theory in place, but if you apply it in a way that it is discriminatory, then you're going to have a discriminatory policy. Gavin, it is the 20th anniversary of 9-11 on Saturday, and it's just happening almost synchronised with the collapse of Western involvement in Afghanistan. Do you think the past six weeks are going to alter people's view or possibly the longer-term historical analysis of the, of the war on terror? 
I think inevitably that's the case. Um, but it does seem to me that there are, we have to be very, very careful about what lessons we learn from this. And I think America's enemies or potential enemies have to learn a lesson. And those of us who are friends of the United States also have to learn lessons. For the, for the enemies, it seems to me, the lesson is the one that I learned uh, after the invasion of Panama, uh, some Latin American leaders, I, I spent a lot of time in Latin America, and one of them said to me, the lesson of Panama, when Americans went in, got rid of General Noriega, who ran the country and then left, the lesson is that you can play with the monkey, but you must not pull his tail. And what happened was Noriega just pushed too far. And so there's a limit. And uh, in that sense, America is actually quite a resolute ally. I mean, they've been in Europe for 70 years and, and you know, South Korea as well. That's one lesson. The lesson for the rest of us, I think, is that for Americans, like all of us, all politics is local. And, you know, Joe Biden, I w- I, in 2008, I was in Denver when he was uh, accepted the, the you know, nomination as vice presidential candidate and Obama was there and so on. And I took a wrong turning bef- trying to get to the, the big stadium where it was all happening. And I stopped off somewhere to um, a shopping mall in a working class area to ask for directions. And I went into this what looked like a kind of strange building, but it turned out to be a funeral parlor. So this was 2008, summer of 2008. And in the funeral parlor, there were pictures all over of American boys, and they were all, they were all boys or young men, uh, who had, in uniform, who had been buried by the people in that funeral parlor. And they were doing special offers on coffins. And that's Biden. That's what he gets. And he, he's he been dealt, it seems to me, uh, a couple of hospital passes uh, by Trump. One is one is this one. And what he's done in Afghanistan is, uh, is, is clearly not particularly competent. But I don't think he had many, many options. He could have done it better, but he still probably had to get out. And the other is, what is he going to do, if anything, about Iraq? That doesn't mean to say that the United States is not a resolute ally to uh, certain people. It does mean that wars, I'm afraid, which are wars of discretion, they're going to think about perhaps very differently in the future. Meanwhile, a new type of crisis is about to engulf Afghanistan as war and civil conflict merge with climate change to create something of a nightmare scenario, one we lack the tools to deal with. Parts of the country have warmed twice as much as the global average. Rains have declined in areas containing the country's most important farmland. Meanwhile, with the country in conflict, much of the nation's limited resources go towards fighting one another. Fighting climate change must seem like a distant Western affectation. Arthur, in the case of Afghanistan, how has... The insecurity and instability of the country limited the ability to even even look at longer term issues like climate that is actually going to affect the country profoundly, possibly even more profoundly than countries like us that are thinking about it all the time. Well, Afghanistan, even at the best of times, is a very, very poor country. Uh, it's a country that, that relies largely on four really big rivers that, that are cross-border. So they flow from neighbouring countries, Pakistan, Iran and so on. And it is a country that is, as you've said, very, very susceptible to, to the climate crisis and particularly to uh, desertification. You overlay with that, now we're talking roughly 40 years of conflict, uh, slightly over. It, there just has not been an opportunity for the country to even begin to try to sort of address some of these challenges. And one of the things that is part of that is that it is, of course, a very weak country. It, you know, its government lacks resources, and therefore it is it is very vulnerable to neighbouring countries basically taking water resources 
from rivers, uh, you know, for, for their own purposes. So you, you've got all of those problems. And it's a country that has faced famine on many occasions and may well do again this winter because of the, the conflict which has, you know, undermined uh, agriculture. And the Taliban are now a government without an existing government structure and an antipathy to foreign aid. The New York Times is reporting that because of the fighting, people haven't even been able to plant their crops in time. This is the kind of thing that under normal circumstances you would imagine humanitarian intervention, but it doesn't really seem very likely. Yeah, I don't know about that. I think that there are um, there are channels. Now, clearly, you know, you've got the the Western countries have, have, have cleared off and, and, you know, one might argue in, in, a, in a sort of manner that is, is extremely unhelpful. But China's taking quite a big interest. You've got Muslim countries, particularly the Gulf countries, Qatar in particular, that have got this particular connectivity with the Taliban. So I think there are ways to get resources into the country. The real issue is that the Taliban itself... The reason it hasn't yet formed a government is it is a very, very divided movement. It is, it, there is no consensus on who should be in charge, on who should do what. So even if you find willing donors and channels, you don't at the moment have a government to interact with. And I think that's very problematic. And the Taliban have said they're halting heroin production, the crop which funded both farmers and actually the Taliban themselves. And apparently there was a 37% increase in the area of Afghanistan used for opium production uh, in 2020 alone. Do you think that, I mean, uh, this is a big question, but can Afghanistan survive without its heroin crop? Well, it's a huge driver of export earnings, albeit technically um, illegal. I'm very sceptical about it. The Taliban are very good at announcing that they're bringing an end to heroin production. They've said that in the past. And it normally tends to rise in areas under their control after an initial spectacle of counter-narcotic activities. One thing about opium is that it's very water intensive. So the reason, for example, that Helmand was a great place for growing opium was because of a big irrigation system that was actually something that the Americans had installed back in the 60s. You're kidding me. Yeah. I mean, it's... That's your tax dollars at work. Oh, God. Your tax dollars (laughs) have created this canal system, which uh, makes it perfect for, for growing growing this uh, this wonderful plant. So, uh, you know, there is an argument that, that heroin production is a problem setting aside the whole issue of illegal drugs and the way that it can fuel other, other problematic issues, that it, it's a problem because it, it consumes a lot of the country's water in a water-scarce environment. But at the moment, you know, as the 20 years of foreign uh, occupation demonstrated, trying to get people to grow something other than heroin or opium is very difficult because you make so much less money. This is how to get people in the West off it. Brand it as bad for the planet. Well, right. You know, that 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 is probably a very, very good way of doing it. And, and of course, it, it's also uh, worth remembering that it's not just Afghanistan that is affected by this. The, the sort of instability in a wider region is very much linked to this whole transit of of the heroin trade. And so whilst I'm a liberal on drugs policy and I've, I've got all kinds of views about the war on drugs, the impact it has in that region is considerable. Maria, you study ideology and legislation. Do, do we pay enough attention to the way that resources as well as ideologies drive insurgencies, drive extremism and radicalization? No, and that's terrible because um, can you imagine how different the war on terror would have been if the focus had been on resources and not on ideology? So you Mm. couldn't say that the terrorists were attacking us because they hated our freedoms. You would say the terrorists are attacking us because they have a dispute about resources. It's different. 
it would be different. And in a way, it would have been in many ways better because when you focus on resources, you remove the whole question of good versus evil from mm. confrontations, from conflicts like this. And good versus and good versus evil things are great when it comes to comic books and um, stories. But on, in reality, the world is much more complicated than that. And there is evil and goodness on both sides of a conflict. So it just distracts from, mm. I believe, what is the reality of a conflict, which is our war is about resources. That's what war is. And it has mm. always has been. And the Taliban now have a problem of incumbency, which they haven't had in 20 years. They've got to run a government. They've got to run a very different country. It does seem the height of kind of Western navel gazing to sort of wonder, does uh, kind of Islamic fundamentalism have a position on climate change? But this is this is going to come knocking on the door, whether they like it or not, isn't it? It is. I mean, to quote Hamilton, the musical, winning is easy, governing governing is harder. Mm. So it's not just the issues with climate change, but when it comes to running a government, running social care, running education policy, running security policy, welfare policy, etc. All these things are much more complicated and than just winning a war. So I think the issues that they are going to encounter in running a country are going to be myriad and not just related to climate change. Mm. Um, and it's not just in Afghanistan. Of the world's 25 nations most vulnerable to climate change, uh, more than a dozen, more than half, well, very nearly half of them are afflicted by the kind of conflict that we're, we're talking about. So we're probably going to have to get used to, you know, mixed crisis areas where there's, there's violence, but there's also severe climate disruption. Gavin, the traditional way that we in the West get to know about this stuff is is the pained 10 o'clock news reports, you know, all the in showing you terrible things that are, that are going on. Do you think we get enough context that the reasons for these kind of climate and resource disasters are things that are linked to international independence issues? There are things that we can do something about. No, uh, we don't get enough context. Uh, I mean, context is available, but obviously the 10 o'clock news is a, a, a limited vehicle. It's, uh, the reports have to be fairly short. But what happens, of course, and what will, it seems to me, will be the story of the next two or three decades is that if you don't recognize the interconnectedness uh, and you don't think about what we do over here as having effects to people over there, in other words, what we in rich countries do is having effects over there. If you're, you're the, your, your climate guy, Alex Sharma, goes, flies off to Nepal to see what's happening there rather than actually staying at home trying to figure out how to work COP26 and, and it was Costa Rica and various other places. And what, what eventually happens, of course, is that people will be on the move and they are on the move. And I, you know, I'm talking to you from Kent. I'm a Chancellor of the University of Kent. If I go down to the coast between Dover and along Kingsdown, uh, towards Sandwich, I have seen uh, recently over the summer, you know, people coming in and they're coming in from countries which suffer conflict and they also suffer from climate change. They cut they you, you can you know, you, you can guess where those countries are. And they come here and they come here partly because we were over there and many of them speak English. Uh, so we've got that that to deal with. So the context is very wide. And it, you're right, it isn't covered enough, perhaps, but it's difficult in a short news bulletin, it seems to me. But you would imagine that uh, it's, it, will, it would certainly be an angle at COP26, wouldn't it? Fix carbon and, uh, you know, reduce terrorism, reduce conflict. is It's kind of a selling point of view, Boris Johnson. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure how COP26 is going to go. I'm not, I'm not full of optimism in that. I mean, I am f- much more full of optimism, actually, uh, for how some, I, I've talked to a number of uh, 
companies in hard to abate industries, you know, things that, that which have uh, industries which have a problem. And one of the things I've been told over and over again by some of the people working in it is if we want to get the best people in our industry, we have to be seen to be doing something. Well, how effective it is, I don't know, about climate change. I'm not saying that the solution is not governmental because governments have to try to do things to level the playing field. But if you want young women and young men to come and join your company and you want the best and the brightest, you've got to be seen to be doing a bit better than just polluting the planet, it seems to me, or it seems to the CEOs, actually. In Scotland, the SNP and Scottish Greens have just agreed an historic power-sharing agreement. It's the first time a Green Party has been represented in a Scottish or any UK government. So what's it going to mean for the SNP's hitherto unchallenged rule in Scotland and environmental politics more widely? We spoke to somebody who knows. I'm Andrew MacDonald. I'm, I'm a reporter at Politico. I work on the London Playbook newsletter and also more generally in Scotland and in the corridors of, of Hollywood. In May of this year, we had an election in Scotland. The SNP came out and, and won 64 seats when you need 65 for a majority. So there was always this, this situation where there was going to be some talks going on between the SNP and the Scottish Greens over a potential cooperation agreement. So unlike in the arrangement Theresa May had with the DUP, the Scottish Greens have now formally entered the Scottish government. And their co-leaders, Lorna Slater and Patrick Harvey, have been given junior ministerial roles with brand new portfolios. They're getting a couple of special advisors and they'll have the ability to shape government policy behind closed doors. And, and they've published this big shared policy program with a call for a second independence referendum right at the top. Symbolically, this, this deal means that at the head of COP26 in Glasgow, which is um, less than 100 days away, Scotland is the first government in the UK to have participation from members of the Green Party. And that symbolism is important because the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP, even if they don't have a particularly important role at that climate summit, they still want to make the right noises and, and set the right examples on climate and the environment. On a practical level, I mean, it, it really kind of remains to be seen how this will actually influence Scotland. I mean, and what's worth keeping in mind is kind of the raw numbers of how this government is made up. The Greens are junior. The SNP have 64 seats in Parliament. The Greens won eight in Parliament, and one of those eight MSPs has actually become the presiding officer at Holyrood, which is our equivalent of the, the Speaker of the House of Commons. This basically means that the SNP can, can rule as they would have done anyway. But for the Greens, they, they'll see this as an opportunity to push the SNP further on climate, to bring in new policies that the SNP wouldn't have pushed forward with. And I think as well, for, for looking at it as an, as an observer, it freshens up the government in Scotland because we've we've had the SNP government for since 2007. Now, there's been majority administrations and minority administrations, but there haven't been any other parties in there. And there are some big wedge issues be between the SNP and the Greens. I mean, and we've seen quite a prominent one this week where the SNP Scottish government have said they're going to introduce a form of vaccine passports to go into clubs and to go to large events by the end of this month. The Scottish Greens have never been in support of vaccine passports. And indeed, Patrick Harvey, their co-leader, said back in July that vaccine passports would deepen discrimination against those who have not yet been vaccinated and would deepen inequality at a time when the country needs collective effort. That's a big problem already at this, at this stage. A couple of weeks in, they are already at odds. And the Greens haven't confirmed yet that they'll, they'll vote for vaccine passports when it it comes to a vote at Parliament. If they don't, it's, it's hard to see how the agreement could survive at that early stage. Mm -hmm. 
Gavin, as our Scott for the day, uh, what, what what do you make of this, the bringing of uh, the Greens into the SNP's government? Well, I mean, they are political opponents. They run against each other in elections, but they have cooperated in the past. Uh, it, it means a couple of things. One is it means that it is undeniable that pro-independence parties have a majority in the Scottish Parliament at Holyrood. Uh, the SNP were one, one seat short. They got 64 in the last election. They needed 65 to have a, have a, a majority. They've now got eight seats from the Greens. Uh, and so uh, th- that will help them make the case for a second independence referendum. That's one thing. The other thing is uh, they have cooperated before, actually, on quite a few things. And I chaired a, a meeting in Edinburgh which involved a Scottish government minister who was SNP, he was a finance minister. He made a speech and some of the people there included some property developers and they had a real go at him about some bill that was going through the Scottish Parliament, the details of which I didn't know. But when he was given a very hard time and he, he completely turned to the flank of, uh, of the argument by saying, well, it's fine. You have a go at me, but you should really be having a go at the Greens because those clauses in that bill that you object to, we put in to cooperate with our friends in the Green Party. So it gives, <laughs> as you will know uh, from our own dear country and from Germany and elsewhere, it tends to be the minority party and coalitions who suffer the worst mm. problems from a coalition. Ask Nick Clegg, for example. Finally, September the 11th didn't just remake our politics and our approach to security over the past 20 years. It cast a huge shadow over pop culture and the creative industries, creating a generation of paranoid works concerned with enemies within mass destruction and ideological warfare. Like me, Maria Norris is a bit of a geek, so we're going to look at how 9-11 shaped pop culture. (laughs) Maria, like me, you're a big fan of the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, which literally begins with a surprise attack on a comfortable planet of humans, and at one point features humans in refugee camps on an occupied planet actually carrying out suicide bomb attacks in an attempt to free themselves. Was there any better dramatisation of the war on terror than Battlestar Galactica? It would be very hard to find a better dramatisation of the war on terror than Battlestar Frankly, it'll be very hard to find a better TV show than Battlestar mm-hmm. Galactica. It's um, it's brilliant. It's fascinating the way it deals with terrorism, political violence from all possible perspectives. It is really a story about a people trying to survive, a people under siege, a people not knowing how they will survive, who to trust, but also people surrounded by violence and the possibility of violence in every respect. It's fantastic. I think there are only other two comparable what I think comparable stories um, on um, political violence and terrorism in general in popular culture. The other one is um, Battlestar, not Battlestar, we just talked about that. <laughs> it's um, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is pre 9-11, but oh. I think it's, there is the way that Star Trek Deep Space Nine deals with terrorism is unprecedented in popular culture to this day. And there is also Mawaru Penguin Drum, which is an anime, which on the surface is about penguins, but it's actually about um, political extremism and violence in Japan, particularly the 1995 um, Tokyo subway sarin attack. So what we have here are these very different scenarios, very different ways of exploring political violence in a very in a way that is much more free and encumbered than you have in normal videos, you know, normal programs, TV shows that aren't sci-fi. It took years for the real events to of Iraq to be dramatized in the Hurt Locker, for instance. Why is it that we can talk about these things more easily in science fiction? You know, in the way that, say, in the nineteen fifties, science fiction transposed the communist threat into the realm of aliens and invasion of the body snatchers and stuff like that. I think, and it's the reason why I love science fiction perhaps more than life itself. It's because 
science fiction has no boundaries. You can explore whatever you'd want to explore in whatever way you want to explore in science fiction. So with traditional storytelling, traditional fiction, if you're setting it in the real world, you have limits, you have boundaries, you are restricted by the history and the politics of whatever time period you're writing about. But with science fiction, this is not to say that science fiction is not political. Science fiction is and has always been political. But you have a much more freedom to explore these issues in whatever way you choose, through the medium of penguins, perhaps, or through <laughs> aliens and um, alien invasions, etc. Well, we're talking about 9-11 and what the, the biggest entertainment franchises of the 21st century have strong resonances with this. I mean, the Marvel Universe, the first event, the big first Avengers movie features a 9-11 style attack in, 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 in Manhattan. The destruction of New York is kind of totemic to these stories, as if it's something that has to be returned to and re-examined. And there are loads of echoes in the Marvel world. Iron Man's origin story is basically now kidnapped by Islamist terrorists, and it turns out that they've been they've been buying his weapons to fight their wars and so on. What resonances could, could you see in that? Because in, these are huge, huge entertainment properties put out by the Disney Corporation, could not be more American. I know. And oh, okay, I'm going to try not to make this the Maria hates Tony Stark so much podcast, but I, <laughs> I hate Tony Stark as a character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and in the comic books. I mean, there was at one point, one uh, comic book event in, in the Marvel Universe called Secret Wars, where t Tony Stark had a special tumor that was sentient, because of course he did. That's Tony Stark. Um, I hate him. And he is also very much the embodiment of the post 9-11 American hero. He is a very white, rich man who was attacked by brown terrorists in the beginning and turned out they had been buying his weapons. So who is the real villain here? Of course, it's not Tony Stark because he's never the villain. He's always the hero. So even though America may be involved in some shady dealings or have some terrible history, in the end, they are the heroes no matter what. So it's really complicated. But I think the whole story of who is the villain and who is the baddie and simplifying really complex issues into a story of good versus evil is, well, that's what the Avengers is, isn't it? Before I turn to Arthur and Gavin for their uh, astonished take on uh, what penguins have to tell us about political extremism, you have to tell <laughs> us, Maria, about Frank Miller's holy terror in which Batman fights Al-Qaeda. This is Frank Miller who did the great, you know, much-admired Dark Knight, and this is considered to be one of the most unfortunate things to happen in the world of comics. Yes, um, holy terror is hateful. So before we look into more details, why it's so hateful, it uh, was originally proposed as holy terror Batman, but DC Comics, perhaps in one of the only bright ideas they've ever had, decided that they that was a bit taking it too far. So they didn't want the Batman name attached to um, to holy terror. So it's just holy terror, and the Batman character is now the fixer, is the superhero that goes around killing Muslims. Essentially, it's an absolutely horror show. I mean, calling it Islamophobic is putting it mild. It is extremely, extremely hateful. And Frank Miller himself wrote um, and spoke openly about how this was his propaganda piece and how badly he was affected by 9-11. He felt that it was the first time that he faced an existential threat, uh, an existential menace, and he fully understood what patriotism was because those people wanted us to die. So this was his response to it. Arthur, in sort of British pop culture one of the probably one of the best things to to come out as a reaction to 9-11 was chris morris's four lions which you know the a kind of black comedy of a terrorist cell and how badly they get their attack wrong from somebody who was inside this world did what did you think of four lions i thought it was incredibly funny but also uh, searingly ac accurate i mean i know it's, it's a comedy i know there are 
there's one or two slapstick moments. Um, I, I won't outline them in case of spoilers for those who haven't seen it. But the way it kind of skewers both the sort of inadequacy of of a lot of the kind of national security community, uh, including you know a, a very very sort of dark but but satirical take on on the tragic killing of um, the the Stockwell Underground shooting. But so there are all these sort of takes on things that had really happened. But it also skewers the kind of prevent industry, people on both sides, whether they were self-appointed uh, sort of Muslim community leaders or or sort of ambitious uh, political and, and, and sort of public servants who, who sought to use... The, the issue of Islamist terrorism as a means to kind of build up their own self-importance and influence. And I, I just think it's a, it's an extremely uh, funny and, and, and clever film. I can see why probably some people feel very uncomfortable watching it, but in that sense, it's, um, it's good. You know, films should make us uncomfortable, I guess. What really struck me about it was, more than anything, it showed that Chris Morris did a huge amount of research for this and the, the, the people in the terrorist cell, the real surprise was they are just in no way different from all of the directionless lads you've ever known in your life. They're not, they're not other alien weird people. They are for them. This is, they're getting into football hooliganism or they're getting into far right politics. It's just the kind of stupid thing that stupid lads do. And I find that really affecting. It wasn't, you know, kind of alien invasion from elsewhere. No, indeed. And I think that that's a really key point because it comes back to this issue of radicalization and, and I think something Maria was talking about, about sort of, you know, we want things to be made into issues of good and evil. And of course, it is an evil thing to murder 3000 people in their office in New York. And, and I'm not I'm not questioning that. But ultimately, the individuals doing these things, as you say, are very often youngsters who haven't really been able to sort of internalize the significance of what they're up to. And, and the impact of their of, of their actions and and often as you say it it's there's so much contingency you know you might have got into football hooliganism or or some kind of slightly antisocial but basically rather harmless behavior or you might end up in one of these uh, terrorist groups and and but for a few sort of gateways that you pass through the, these things can can be quite unpredictable one of the reasons why climate change is so difficult to 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 novelize or use is because you do need goodies and baddies so Cormac McCarthy the road works because of course there are bad people in it but the real villain of that is us all of us because we've allowed it to get like that and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker uh thanks to Arthur Snell thank you thanks to Gavin Esler thank you and thanks to our special guest Maria Norris and her penguins Thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And, of course, the new Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Remember, if you like this podcast, why not forward it to three friends? It all helps spread the word. And if you really liked it, then you could support us on Patreon to get early episodes and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. One thing you get is a shout-out on the podcast, and here are some now. Best wishes from me to Barbara Goldsmith, Tom Dawson and Mark Ravenet. Big thanks from me to Scott Napier, Michael Connaughton and Nicola Welch. And finally, best wishes from me to Charlie Covell, Mark Haynes and Paul Holt. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Arthur Snell and Gavin Esler. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. 
Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.